<laughs> we got the RZA, the Jizza, Raquan, the chef, Inspector Dick. Sorry about that. Val Kilmer plays this this awesome, sarcastic straight man who always has some of the best. Or is he a straight man? <laughs> oh, that's what's funny about it. Oh, my God. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Gay Perry, the comedic straight man. He's the sarcastic gay straight man. <laughs> that's so awesome. <laughs> Why didn't you pull the machines? Why didn't you call them? You didn't see what was going on? Well, there's no way to determine that. Yes, there is. An infallible way. They won. Well, it's a casino. People got to win sometimes. Hey, what do you think? I'm a fucking idiot? Probability on one four-wheel machine is a million and a half to one. On three machines in a row, it's in the billions. It cannot happen. Would not happen. You fucking Momo, what's the matter with you? Maybe it was the love of the planets. Maybe it was just my growing dislike for this one. But for as long as I can remember, I have dreamed of going into space. Now that I've met you... Would you object to never seeing me again? The biggest regret of my life, I let my love go. That price on my head, was that dead or alive? Don't remember. See if he starts shooting. I don't ask you over for dinner and then suggest you give a lecture on the peoples of Mesoamerica or whatever your pre-Columbian shit is. This is my job. This is how I pay the fucking rent. The same gentleman that told me that you tried to get your broker's license also told me that you were a straight arrow. You ran a security check on me. Well... Sail on a boat fit for a Bond villain, sometimes you need to play the part, right? First of all, dude, you don't have an accent. Secondly, this is a fucking show dog with fucking papers. You can't board it, it gets upset. Its hair falls out. Walter, fucking dog has fucking papers. Over the line! Huh? I'm sorry, Smokey, you were over the line, that's a foul. What happened? Did your your balls drop off? Hey there, everybody. Welcome into episode 42 of Film Tank. My name is Alex Diekman, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the Shane Black film Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, a film that uh, helped the Robert Downey Jr. resurrection from the grave. Mm-hmm. On uh, this episode, we have the usual clan here. Well, a clan, crew, whatever you want Ooh, to call it. clan? Yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> we got the RZA, the Jizza, Raquan, the chef, Inspector Dick. Sorry about that. That that was not <laughs> Nick Cheney. That was Tucson Egan, and Nick Cheney also here, though, too. Uh, yes, I am. I'm just bewildered by that wonderful performance. <laughs> Thank you. So, is there any other kind that uh, Tucson gives? I don't think so. <laughs> besides Wu-Tang Clan? <laughs> no, but besides like excellent performances every no, week. No, there isn't. Thank you know, you. Tucson mentioned to me, I forgot to tell you this, Alex, <laughs> but before this episode started, and so I guess I'm just going to tease the audience, Tucson says that he has a secret... <laughs> Oh. To divulge about uh, a kiss, kiss, bang, bang. So yeah. okay. I'm excited. Particularly uh, Shane Black. Particularly Shane Black. That, re- so. that pertains to this podcast. Pertains okay. to this podcast. So. Okay. Well, we'll we'll look forward this. to that later in this episode. <laughs> uh, we are going to talk about that film in a little bit. Uh, starting off, though, politics. Uh, yeah, let's talk about. What Don- do you think about him? <laughs> Donald Trump, Ben Carson, can throw some Mike Huckabee in there for you. Gotta have some ups. Yeah. That, that guy. God. 
No. I like how every mic, like, I don't want to go off on a political tangent at all. But, <laughs> I was going to say, I was mostly, or always That kidding. is totally fine to be always kidding. But I, <laughs> I like how every single thing that happens now is somehow Syrian refugees' fault to him. He's like, that shooting out there in California, Syrian refugees. No, it wasn't. It was actually in a... In Completely isolated. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, that's when you have an agenda... Politics for you. Yeah. Know, Just keep grinding that axe until it's nothing but a toothpick. Whatever. <laughs> that's true. Perfect analogy, Tucson. Perfect. So before it's we... It's much get... better than the one time you uh, compared something to like a... <laughs> you said something was so limp yeah, that yeah. it became a yeah. a dryer sheet. A dryer sheet. Yeah, that wasn't a strong one. I'm sorry. Yeah, he was. He was. Uh, you talk- were reaching with that one. Yeah, he, yeah. Was, he was talking about the uh, Avengers: Age of Ultron post credit scene involving uh, Thanos. Yeah. Yeah. Like, He's so limp. Yeah. yeah. It's like a dryer sheet. I need to just like take that out because it was so limp. Yeah, I like how we like discussed about taking the sheet actually out of the dryer. I know like, the day and when we recorded Is this that, what I we're was gonna like, do? "We're just gonna deconstruct because my shitty the, the day the day you said that, like I I have visual like imagery in my head of like you actually making like miming taking that dryer sheet out. So you know, just, at like, least you're always off. at least you're always committed to something. Yeah, I am. That's good. Yeah, that, yeah. that's totally acceptable, and we love it here at Film we, Tank. We sure do. Oh, thanks, guys. Yep. You're welcome. Appreciate it. So, we are going to do a weekend review. Uh, we haven't done one in a little bit. And um, I guess I'll start because um, if you checked out uh, the Instagram page, which I probably maybe didn't. <laughs> um, if, you, if you've checked it in the past maybe eight months. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, it was our first post in 18 weeks, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so it shows how often we love updating that page. Kenny was the heart of our Instagram. He was the heart of our social media presence. And there's a, there's a clear drop-off of when he was not on uh, as many episodes anymore and when our Instagram, Facebook, Twitter page started. Like Instagram like literally dropped off the cliff. Yeah. The others, I've, I've been trying. Yeah, well, yeah. We, we usually update those when we have a new episode. Instagram, yeah. there's really no re- nothing you can do with that. Right. So, yeah. Anyways, though, anyway. getting back to that, I did have a post because myself and Nick over the Thanksgiving holiday weekend uh, went to a theater uh, in Illinois where they show movies that aren't necessarily uh, at every other theater. It's in Evanston, Illinois. And we went to see three films in one day. It was a it was a big day for us. It was very, very busy, big. very busy. Three films, five guys. Oh yeah, we had five. Oh, <laughs> I'm referencing the food uh, establishment, not oh. that we that there were five guys yeah. literally there. There were a lot of old people. There were. I once again. I'm sorry, Alex, but I have to say it once again. I was right, and you were wrong as to how many people would be in that theater. <laughs> Because you were like, no, nobody's going to be there. I'm like, let me tell you, man, exp- this particular location, if it's the weekend, every theater is going to be full. It's going to be popping, man. And I, no, although, there, although there weren't quite as many as the other two, there were a lot of people in the theater to see Legend. So. It wasn't not necessarily quite as many. It was like th- where I sat with the last two seats together. I mean, that's pretty uh, full. Okay. But it was a, oh, it was oh, a except two, for the uh, like the yeah the bottom two of you, which is where we sat for the other two movies. Oh boy, that was uh, the first film was rough, uh, yeah. Brooklyn, in that respect. Yeah. We so I guess we'll just start off with that since yeah. uh, we went to see uh, the first film we saw was Brooklyn. The uh, 
I think it's how do you Sersha? Is that how you say her name? Sure, Ronan. I always oh yeah. <laughs> I thought you were talking of. I don't know what I thought you were talking. Yeah, about. I think was... it's like Saurice or something. I no, South... I, I looked up the pronunciation once, and it well, was then what are you not what me I because I don't remember what it was. <laughs> I, God, I, can I live? Can I live, man? Uh, yeah. Uh, so it's it's not what you would think it is. It's like Sersha or Sarsha or something like that. I don't know. Anyways. Uh, the girl who was in uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel in The Lovely Bones. Uh, uh, Hannah. St- yeah, Hannah, too. I'm just saying, like, she I was know. Hannah. That's fine. It's a great movie. Good. Uh, she is the star of the uh, film Brooklyn about the uh, Irish immigrant in the 1950s. And I have to say, uh, I was not... She's only 21? Yep. I'm sorry, I'm just looking it up, and that like blows. She's younger than me. Like, yeah. I, I, Forever young. Well, anyway, she's made a name for herself. So she far. really has. I yeah. mean, that's she's worked with Wes Anderson, and uh, well, I guess that's really the only big director. Peter Jackson. Oh yeah, with well, come on, come on. He's a big director. <laughs> he is, but no, that's that's quite the career so far. Yeah. Anyway, and uh, this film, uh, where we may maybe in a future episode we'll talk about it. I I don't know. I definitely do want to see it again. Um, I thought I would like it, and it did. Yeah. I don't really know if there's really that much more to talk about about it, other than it was pretty much exactly what I expected it was going to be, and yeah. I enjoyed it. I was going to say, like, I, I enjoyed it as well, but not as much as you, I think. Mm-hmm. I, um, it's the kind of film I would normally like, but there were a few problems that I feel like if we ever do like a full episode on it somehow, like I would definitely get into yeah. in that conversation that I felt like the, the there were too many times where I felt the writer showing his hand, but the, the performances were great all across the board. Yeah. Dom Hall Gleason, who's pretty much always really good was yeah. acceptable in this movie. It's the kind of film really quick that i feel like you could totally go see like uh like like at christmas if you have to have a lot of like like you have to bring your grandmother and whatever like it's really inoffensive so to speak um and i but also still a good movie like it's crowd pleasing and yet also very well done well and there's definitely uh if it's uh, females or groups of people or whatever definitely a lot of uh I would say emotional moments in, in a different way that, than other films, but a lot of kind of tear jerky e moments in it for some people, I would think. Yeah. So, but yeah, I thought it was good, and uh, that's really all. There's nothing really stands out that I want to say that's like great or not great about it. But yeah, yeah I thought it was good. The second movie we went to see was the Tom Hardy uh, dual uh, twin. What's up? Just say it. What? It's it, what, what's the name of the movie? Legend? Can I just interject for a second? I, I guess. <laughs> every did, I every, so every single time that you guys talk about Legend, I always think of the Tom Cruise, Tim Curry, like Ridley Scott, like fantasy film Legend. And I'm just imagining all these old people going to see fucking Tim Curry dresses the devil. Right. Well, that is not what happened. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that to the table. <laughs> Sorry. It's, it's like four weeks in a row where you've just completely derailed something we were doing. So. Yeah. What about Legend? So anyways, the actual the Tom movie, Hardy the actual vehicle movie we went to see it was uh, Legend, which uh, involved Tom Hardy uh, playing the uh, the um, English mobster twins, uh, as he played them both. And I actually thought he was the wait a minute, best. one of them wasn't a gangster. Okay, I was making a joke because he kept saying that. Oh, I'm not a gangster. I'm a club owner. Oh. Okay, but he was though, so I know I, I was making a never mind. Oh, so I, I got your joke, oh. Nick. <laughs> okay. Anyways, I'm it's, sorry. It's Have you two, seen the film? Me two. and Tucson will just sit in the corner and go fuck ourselves. I, 
Let's True. not do that. Oh. <laughs> Me and Tucson will be in the corner and we'll go fuck each other. <laughs> okay, so what about Legend? Wow. So, Legend uh, was just uh, not that great. And for me, as someone who really does love the gangster genre, and even though I still gave this a, like, reasonably okay grade of two and a half, still a lot of flaws here, and it just uh, it just really wasn't that good, other than a couple of the scenes that I really liked. And I did think Tom Hardy's performance really wasn't that bad. The whole movie as a whole was a, just a mess, so, yeah. Yeah, I hated it. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was awful on mm-hmm. every level. Uh, the only reason why I even gave it one star instead of a half star was simply because sometimes the cinematography was somewhat above what you normally expect. Uh, but uh, yeah, I thought it was awful, and I thought Tom Hardy in a dual role was awful. I thought even making that casting choice, and I know that they're supposed to be twins, but I, I would have rather had like actual twins or... Uh, or not Tom Hardy, because I thought he was fucking awful, and I can't really stand Tom Hardy, and I especially can't stand it when he's supposed to be playing like a mentally challenged person that the entire theater is laughing at every time he says something that's homophobic, or not him saying that, but uh, whatever, like this this film was like, there were moments when it was like not politically correct, which is totally fine, but then like the audience was eating it up as like, ho ho, now that's comedy, and like every time that happened, it was just really awkward, and I thought the script was awful, and everything else was awful, so those are my yeah, thoughts. there was this really and the, the problem was too is that the the <laughs> you know mentally challenged paranoid schizophrenic, whatever you want to call it, twin brother, uh, and I believe that was Ron was that was his name. They're Ron, twins, and, right? Ron and Reggie. Ron and the, Reggie. Was, two people. Ron right? was the was the one. The the problem is, yeah. and uh, this was on Tom Hardy and the filmmakers, is that he sounded exactly like Bane from The Dark Knight Rises. So, and he's supposed to be he's supposed to be gay, and he's supposed to be this crazy, which was the source of a lot of laughter from the audience. Well, I guess but every time the, he would say, "I like men." <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing. He's like having this. Of course, he likes men. He's mentally challenged. Oh no, but I'm saying like I that's know. that's what the, that's that's, what, that's how they were playing it. That's what it. Well, well, whether they were playing it that way, I'm not entirely sure, but I. I feel like it unintentionally comes across that way, but when you, and the theater took it that way. When Damn. you have Tom Hardy and you and you have him playing this role, and you, you have him saying lines like "Oh, I like boys. Uh, you should know that about me. I like boys." Mm. Why does he sound like that? I, because you know and that's the reason why I hated Tom Hardy in this because he was given the role or he was given the I would say opportunity to play two different people and he mistook that to mean that he has to like what I was explaining to you I think on our car ride home that like he thought his performance had to be like diametrically opposed to each other rather than just play two people yeah, that he reasonably to- should sound very similar if they're twins i mean like <laughs> well he certainly shouldn't sound like bane from right. batman he shouldn't he shouldn't sound like the exact same voice he's doing we'll yeah. just have to imagine the fire <laughs> i don't know whatever yeah, yeah there's really a, not really too much more to say in a weekend review segment about that <laughs> there's a lot to say about no there it. is but, <laughs> but in, yeah. in this in this segment yeah. there's not that much more to say because it really was not anything that stood out that was really great and it it just was not a, a good film, uh, even though I got some enjoyment out of it. The last film we saw, and definitely the best of the day, I think by everyone's uh, thought process, uh, was Spotlight, uh, the film that will likely be the front runner for the uh, best picture this year at the Academy Awards. 
And uh, we saw it, and I think me and Nick both really enjoyed it. And I know Nick already is uh, taking the time to see it again and likes <laughs> yeah. it even more now. As you say, we saw it Saturday, I saw it Sunday. <laughs> um, I, uh, I I thought it was fantastic. And yeah. it's also a movie that really speaks for itself. I mean, it's very straightforward. I, I told you that I love movies that simply center around a group of people that work to solve a problem and, you know, the steps that it goes through. Uh, and that's exactly what this is. You know, it's just investigative journalism in its most pure form centered around a subject that I'm personally quite, uh, I, I'm not going to say the word passionate about because that's a weird thing to say, but yeah. like I would say very fascinated fascinated, and have very strong feelings about uh, as far as, uh, well, in case I, people don't know, the Catholic church yeah. cover-up of the molestation cases uh, throughout well, the years. I think the the crazy thing about the film is that it, it's you know based on a true story and even though we've heard the story and and we know the story and we've we've read about it and everyone for the most part knows about it it was just for me at least staggering to see some of the the figures that they talked about in the film and yeah it's just it was uh it was well played and very very interesting storyline in terms of um, the difference between what they're doing and and how proud the people who had spotlight at the Boston Globe were of the of the work they were doing and actually like trying to actually make a difference in this case where everyone had pretty much just said you know what that's just the way the Catholics do it and we're just gonna just take a pass but I feel like the the stand up part for me uh, comes late in the film when almost almost the shame that they feel even though they are the ones who have done all this work for this time making this article happen that it took this long oh, yeah. to, to get to this point like, and that they felt like embarrassed but to be part of humanity because of this. I mean, the final message is that we're all complicit in, in an act like this because one of the characters uh, who was actually probably my favorite character in the whole movie, to be honest, which mm. is um, Stanley Tucci's character. Because he's just great in general. He is great, but like that's such a side character. I mean, he's obviously an integral part of the case, but mm-hmm. he, you know, he shows up every like 10 minutes or so, and I feel like he just did so much with such a wonderful character. I mean, he plays a lawyer who's so exasperated by the fact that he has to represent all these victims, because that's the right thing to do, and yet, of course, it's also up until this point, it's, it's the losing battle to be in, you know. Um, but uh, his character says if it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse one, too, and I, you know, that's the theme of the movie right there, is that just because one person acts out and does you know, something horrible, it, we're all complicit in, in something like that if we all just stand by and, and we don't look into it. And uh, and even some of the later active elements, which I won't spoil for anybody who hasn't seen yeah. it, directly tie into how uh, complicit uh, some of our even journalists are. So I, yeah. I thought that was fantastic. And uh, the, the actors in this film, <laughs> actresses, pretty much across the board were so good in delivering such a great um, ensemble piece. Uh, it was just really just a fabulous film that uh, you know if it's there for contention for awards this year or people continue to give it high praise I believe it's well deserved because it's a it's a it's a really good film and Hey, Michael Keaton now that's two years in a row he's put out two great films two yeah um and yeah it's, it's one of those films for me that like when it does come out you know at award season like I, I, I it might not be my favorite film of the year and I would be so happy if it did win though because it totally a film like this deserves it yeah it's it's uh it's really well done and it's uh you know I don't know in terms of the masses how well they will receive this because this is 
definitely not quite the exact same thing, but more like kind of like all the president's men and that kind of investigative way. But for me, it's fascinating because this is just retracing the steps of like a true story and uh, changing some things around of somewhat to make it you know, more dramatic. From what I've read, but, yeah. this is genuinely more close to facts and fiction than most other movies of this nature. Like, that's kind of why it has this uh, feel to it of, like, pure journalism. Like, it just goes from point A to point B, and it doesn't try to carve out a narrative other than just breaking the story. Uh, I'm just saying that because I started fact-checking around just to see kind of whatever. So, sure, maybe dates or whatever. But um, I love – and that's the other thing is I love the way it also shows – what was happening in the context of the real world, for example, nine uh, eleven, and how that affected the investigation. Yeah, little things like that. So I, yeah, I thought it was fantastic. I, and and I, I will say, uh, even though the the ending part where, where the shame that uh, some of the investigative people and other people felt was uh, very interesting to me, but I, I think for me, and this is getting a little bit into the actual like context of the story and of the film, but the fact that. The, the Catholic Church puts out a list of where priests are in practice and, and where they are in that specific year. And that, that basically is what did them in because they basically listed the rapist priests as on sick leave. Yeah. Yeah, they wow. have actual designated code names for when this situation occurs. And not just code names, but you know that there's something fucked up about the entire organization. What, uh, what, if you yeah. have what they call treatment centers for this problem. Yeah. I mean, like, that's like that just blew my mind. That was probably the one big detail of the case I did not know about, which yeah. is that they actually have designated places to send the priests who do this. Not because they truly want them to get better. I mean, they probably do in one respect, but mostly just so that they can do it on the hush-hush. And well, they just take them off the and, board until right. they can like, shuffle them back on again. Their treatment center is yeah. not, you know... Well, and the, the, obviously the other big one of the movie that's like a like floored moment is when they're, they actually get to interview a priest and they ask him, hey... Did you molest kids? And he goes, yeah, I mean, I don't have anything to hide. I did it, and I didn't get any pleasure out of it. I just, you know, whatever. I'm like, huh? Well, but that scene is also, and of course, now we're getting, so I'm not going to get, but the the bombshell of that scene also, for me at least, comes two lines later when when it shows the true cycle of violence. uh, Right, where he, this priest, was part of this continuous that's been going on for... He admits that he was raped. Right. Right, yeah. There's a lot of stuff. Yeah, there is, and we're we're getting too much in it because it's a very fun film, or not fun film. I mean, I don't think we're spoiling anything because it is a real-life case. Yeah. So, unfortunately. It's okay. I'm still going to go see it. Right. That's also not the reason to watch watch it no. like it i mean of course that's part of the fun sure but uh it's mostly just how it's i i was completely enthralled by how intricate the script was and I, when i say it's a fun film i don't mean like it's a ha <laughs> oh, this is so fun yeah. talking about child rape woo! but it's a really uh easy film to stay in involved in <laughs> oh, god it's a really Please don't yeah i'll put the uh about you guys going in the corner to be with each other i'll put that in the intro too We'll all burn together. I was gonna say that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. <laughs> I'm not willing to make that sacrifice. Oh, but it's a it's a, it's a really fun film to watch because it's interesting to follow all the different characters and how they all um, end up working together or not working together. And uh, Spotlight is a great film, so go check it out. All right, that's enough of me talking about. Uh, yes, it is. Oh, okay. 
because you know you you usually like to like to take a lead on this segment because you usually watch a lot more that than is me true. Not do so. that is true. I forgot about that. So uh, why don't you go ahead, Nick, and talk about uh, your week in review? Well, besides those three movies, <laughs> I've watched a few other movies. The one thing I'm going to talk about, the only thing I'm going to talk about, is the film series Zadoichi, the Blind Swordsman, mm. which hails from Japan. And for those who don't know. Uh, what these are uh it's a series of films that spans 25 films uh <laughs> that were made in in the span of like a decade wow <laughs> they were releasing like two a year maybe three uh if they really rushed them whatever um and so that right there does not speak well of its potential but there, I've watched the first four because Criterion <clears throat> put out the Criterion Collection, put out a set of all twenty-five films uh, about two years ago, and I've been wanting, I've been eyeing it ever since. How and much is this collection? By well, the way? well, it's okay. So the standard price, if you were to get it with no sales, which yeah. I do not recommend, is two twenty-five, and Fuck. that's a lot of money, and that includes the. the it's a Blu-ray DVD combo, so mm. technically it's a 27 disc set because it has every film on Blu-ray and uh, DVD. Obviously, films are multiple films are on one disc, but that, that includes DVD and Blu-ray copies of all of them. Yeah. Uh, so annually, uh, there is a Criterion 50% off sale at Barnes and Noble. One is always in July, and the other one's always in November. Mm. Uh, so I took advantage of the 50% off sale. Uh, that was happening in November, but I also took the 50% off because I just want to express to people how easy it is to get good sales if you just wait uh, when it comes to Criterion sales. So I got 50% off with a 30% off Black Friday coupon with a 10% off member discount. So it became a ridiculous like $70. Like You sound like me when I'm like going out for game deals on yeah, Steam. Like I'm, you're like the movie guy and I'm the game guy. Yeah, I like so that. It's, it's, it's very possible. If, if you want to get this set, you, you can get it for a good price. You just got to be patient. Yeah. And so anyway, uh, you know, this the series itself is very simple. It's about Zatoichi, who is a blind masseur who travels from uh, town to town. He's part of – he calls himself uh, – uh, I'd say he implicates himself as part of the Yakuza. Like he's retired from that life though. So he's almost like a reluctant James Bond because he has these capabilities, but he doesn't want to fight anybody anymore. But of course, this is a samurai film, so to speak. So it means he gets roped into fighting people, even though he's blind. And, and that's part of the fun is that, you know, he's like, I mean, it's it's crazy and it's campy and ridiculous because, you know, he somehow knows exactly where they are. But that's just part of the shtick of these films. But I was just really enthralled by some of the, A, the cinematography is amazing. Like, I genuinely had no real expectations for these films, especially with, you know, two coming out a year, you know, I figured like these would just be like shot, reverse shot cuts and then just thrown out to the woods. But there are some fantastic tracking shots, some great landscapes. I mean, we see certain scenes that are like just the kind of filmmaking we don't really see anymore, especially in like an American cinema, like when it comes to like mainstream movies where like whole conversations that take place in forests will happen like in the background and like the, the camera itself will be placed like two tree lines down, like just to get a good shot, you know? So <clears throat> that aspect of it is great. And the first two films are in black and white and the other 23 are in color. So I was really almost like sad to see the black and white go because it just looks so gorgeous. But of course they do a lot of good stuff with color as well. Um, and what it really ends up feeling like is like a TV series because it's like, 
you can't expect for a, a series that has spawned 25 films to really obviously get particularly nuanced or so. But if you just look at it through the lens of like Zadoichi is going to do the same thing every episode, so to speak, then you can kind of like start to pick out your favorites. Like, well, this one's a little more heavy on the action or this one is a little more because like the same thing that always happened is uh, he's also a gambler. So like Zadoichi will always get into a fight reluctantly. He'll always gamble at some point and take advantage of somebody that tries to take advantage of him because he's blind and who always have a love interest at some point that he had just met, you know, whatever. Um, and so, like, even though it's a very formulaic recipe, it just kind of becomes this fun mashup of, like, how much you like of what. So, like, for example, I was, like, so far my favorite out of the first four was the first one, uh, and I think that's because there's a lot more staging and sets, you know, like, there's a lot of sets of, like, inns and whatnot, whereas, like, the fourth film, which is my least favorite, had a lot more outdoor photography, like, on-location shooting, so it's kind of like, there, there really is, is enough variety, so to speak, so far, obviously, once you get to 25, we'll see, but I've, I've, what I've read about the series suggests that it still will keep up that variety, I mean, Toshiro Mifune will appear at some point, and... Hey, hey, hey! Yeah. Love Whoa. that guy. And Zadoichi meets Yojimbo, um, which some people say he's reprising his character from the Akira Kurosawa series, but some people say he's actually not. He's playing a different Yojimbo. Okay. I don't know. But Toshiro Mifune. Um, and I know, like, the, the, the 24th film, which is directed by the star uh, who plays Zadoichi himself, is supposed to be, like, extremely dark and depressing and gory in a way that the series never was before. So it seemed like there are some very fun installments to look forward to as far as, like, you know, like people trying different things and whatnot. So uh, so in terms of length, are these, like, full-length films, or are they, like, an hour or an hour and 15 minutes? They're literally, yes, that's the other great thing about them, is that they're roughly... 90 minutes. Some, okay. The second one was 72 minutes. I mean, okay. so they're, they're never less than 70, but just about only, uh, from what I could tell, only uh, Zadoichi meets Yojimbo is like over two hours long. Okay. The rest are like 90 minutes, and some are quite literally 70 to 75 to 80 minutes. So it really doesn't feel like that much of an investment to like throw one on and watch it and then, you know, watch something else or whatever. It's not like okay. these are all like two and a half hour samurai films. It's not like watching seven samurai and then you right. have 25 more. times. Yeah. yeah. No, no, it's not God like that damn. at all. That's why I mean like these really do feel like just like episodes of a TV show. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one that's certainly formulaic as far as like it, you know, you can't expect to be very serialized, although that aspect, I wasn't expecting it to be serialized, and it's really not. It's not like um, only the first two films are, I would say, like directly tied together because at that point they didn't realize that they were going to have a hit on their hands. Like they made the first one, and then people really responded to it in Japan, and then they're like, okay, well, we got to make a sequel. So the sequel to that one, the second one, is definitely tied into the first because he makes a promise to somebody that he'll return in a year. So they kind of follow up on that promise and whatnot. Then once they started the third one and they realized that they were probably going to start making a lot more, it's definitely, it, you know, Zadoichi's tales just change from film to film. But um, characters keep getting referenced from the past. So it's like, it, it might hmm. seem, uh, I would say it might seem trivial, but I, I kind of appreciate that. Like in the fourth film, one of the people that is coming after him is the brother of the guy that he killed in the third film. You know, so it kind of feels like it's the same universe, even though Serialized. Yeah, yeah, even though it's, it's, it's different adventures. Zatoichi goes to the barber. <laughs> Zatoichi goes to the stores. <laughs> Sorry. 
No, that's pretty much actually what, <laughs> what, the, what the titles sound like. I mean, not Ghost of the Barber, but it's just like Zadoichi in the Chest of Gold or Zadoichi versus the Chess Master. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, so I've seriously, I've never really gotten into the samurai films uh, that much at all. Like, I, I like the two, maybe, yeah, I think the two of them that I've seen by Kurosawa, but that's kind of, he's in a league of his own when it comes to filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, like Seven Samurai, <laughs> Throne of Blood, those yeah. are like classic samurai right. films. But I think because that this is centered around a protagonist who a is it's handicapped so it's kind of it's a different spin on it um mm-hmm. which is more of a focus than his samurai skill like it's a, a lot more um one little trick i like is that it seems like in every movie he slices a candle <laughs> like just like there'll be a candle you know like flickering or whatever and then someone will be like i bet like like i've ever heard your sword skills are so good but you're blind and then he'll be like watch I mean, there's always a candle next to him <laughs> he'll take out the his sword and he'll slice it down the middle even though he's blind. that sounds like almost like a like a recurring theme that egg like there's almost like a checklist like well we need to have a candle well, scene so. if that's the thing, but you and the more you watch the more you'll see the series start to like basically understand what his strengths are and like what the fans will want so to speak because the i watched the opening to the fifth film and i was like fucking giddy because the fifth film after me thinking wow he really slices a lot of candles in these movies the fifth film is the first scene is he's in uh, some kind of inn or something like that and like you have no context for what's happening it kind of throws you in the middle of the scene and he's um he's just trying to eat in peace or something and then people start messing with him which always seems to happen apparently in his universe, people like to pick on blind people, uh, and so he it literally. It was Japan, man. Yeah, it was the time. <laughs> and instead of having an opening credit sequence, we're just thrown into the scene, and all of a sudden he stands up because these people want to fight him, and all of a sudden he takes out his sword, slices the candle so that it both slices in half, and it goes out, and he goes, "Darkness is my friend." And then all of a sudden it just flashes on the screen, Zadoichi, and I'm like, "Fuck yeah!" And then he just starts slicing everybody in the dark. I'm like, "This is fucking awesome." So, like, it just seemed like that film knew to start with that because. People were just like, "Oh man, I want to see him slice some fucking candles." So, <laughs> I I'm really really enjoying it so Good. far. So, Good stuff. That's all I wanted to talk about. Nice. Well, you you've sold me on maybe trying to watch one or two of these someday. With we you. should watch the Yojimbo one since you yeah. like Toshiro because you can definitely watch them out of order. That's, uh, if that's you watch good. them in order, it's like you can benefit from it, but mm-hmm. they're completely standalone. So yeah, well, I like I, as you know, I am a rather large Toshihiro Mifune fan. So you are. someday maybe we'll sit down and watch it. Let's do it. Cool. So, Tucson, let's uh, let's hear about your your week. Okay. So, I didn't watch a lot this week just because I was busy, like, celebrating. I was out of town in Kansas yeah. with my family. Hey, um, we don't judge. Yeah. Huh. Um, I didn't watch a lot of films, but I did finally um, finish off the first season of The Leftovers. And that's a show that I know you guys are very much fans of, and you've yeah. already talked a lot about it. But I yeah. just want to, like – and I know that – from when this episode is being recorded, we're on the cusp of the final episode of the second season. I have no idea about anything about the second season. By the time this episode actually gets released, the second season will be over. Yeah. 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 But I just want to like sum up like why I enjoy the leftover season one so much. It's, it's almost hard to encapsulate because I started off like watching the first three episodes of a friend over the weekend. And then I came back another preceding weekend to like watch the last seven just because I wanted to like get all of them through. And it, that was so exhausting emotionally, spiritually. This is a soul crushing series. And I'm trying to like nail down what it is about the appeal of the show that I like so much. And I think it's just because to start off like there's no love lost between me and Damon Lindelof. If you if you listen to our our Prometheus episode, you know how I feel about you some love of, him. You know how I feel about some of his writing. Well, and we've talked before about 
Star Trek and that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but I think that I really enjoy this film. I'm no, I mean, I really enjoy this this series so far for the first season, just because it seems so antithetical to what I what turned me away from Lost. In that it's not trying to string me along with like these larger questions. There's obviously these this larger mystery of like how did 140 million people disappear off the face of the earth and Gary Busey and Gary Busey, <laughs> Gary Busey, Shaq, the Pope. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was like, what's the through line between all of those? I have no idea. To be fair. I just want to point out Lindelof <laughs> did not write Star Trek. Yeah, but he was involved with it. Wasn't he? He was a producer. Yeah. Okay. Obviously it is. I feel like his faults, so to speak, come out when he's the writer, like, uh, I believe he was for Prometheus. But he I was, feel like that he, more he falls was, on JJ Abrams for yeah, Star Trek. He was, the big part of the idea to cover up the con thing. Mm. Oh, yeah, like he was the one who suggested that apparently. That's and a damn that, shame. And that was like not I'm really not handled that well. Him, but just, yeah. as far as like I'm just I, saying he was yeah. involved with that. Okay. Anyway, so going back to to the leftovers, what I really think sum up, sums up why I enjoy this show so much is because throughout the first episode and the first season, there's never a character that is so typical of a show of a broader mystery like this that's like sprawled over a corkboard of conspiracies and coincidences and they're going to hunt the truth down no matter what. It's like, no, that's not what this show is about. This show is about people living in the wake of this terrible, ineffable just ordeal. It's and collective PTSD. Yeah, it's, it's just them trying to, to eke out an existence and basically all of the, the old rules have been totally thrown out of the window and people are just trying to make sense in this vacuum of existential meaning. Like, I, when I was watching the later episodes, I remember something that you uh, told me before, Nick, about your theory about the show being in some parts, a, a broader metaphor for how people deal with depression. Yeah. And I can totally see where you're coming from with that because it's yeah. just like how people, they, they, they go to different things. They try to, to fill a gap yeah. or sometimes they just don't feel it at all. Sometimes right. they just want to be in, in, in this, in this, this vacuum of, of, of meaning. And to look for meaning is essentially, you know, futile. Fruitless. Yeah, yeah. Fruitless. Yeah. And, and I almost, it's it's interesting seeing how these these characters interact with one another, especially with the 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 larger, more mysterious group of the guilty remnant. Yeah. Which even in like the penultimate episode, where like one of the the leaders, for lack of a better word, like kind of like recites all of these different mantras and different things in tandem from one another to one to one of the lead characters, as though it's supposed to be kind of like a sermon in a sales pitch. Even then, like. It's hard to dis- discern what it is the hell that she's talking about. I feel like I'm missing two thirds of this puzzle, and what she just told me was like, like one <laughs> one third of it. Like, I, I know you've, you've you guys have been watching the second. Well, no, season. it's not so much that we know more than you. It's just yeah. I would say there are episodes of the second season that directly, like I would say, probe at that idea. Yeah. Like, you, do you actually stand for anything, or yeah. are you just bullshitters? Yeah. Are so. are you are you just are these guys Nazis, Walters? No, Donnie. These are just these are nihilists that you don't believe. They're nothing to be afraid of. Yeah. But but what what I God, I just now I just lost my train of, well, train well, of thought. It was a good reference, though. So, something I definitely think about the series, and it's something that has continued on to the second season, is that even though the guilty remnant are the most self-aware of sort of saying, "Oh, this is meaningless," and they're not really shelling out anything because they don't really. 
they don't really have a agenda per se, other than you shouldn't be following an agenda. And I feel like that's something that almost comes to light with more groups in the second season. And I feel like the more I've thought about the first season, the more clear it is, is that even groups that have an agenda and like a, like a, a plan and whatever, it's all bullshit. Like there's yeah. no, there's no real group that has even like a glimmer of reality in it. It's all just, just made up. And I think that there's reaction. a self-awareness yeah. in, in the guilty remnant in even like, like saying that, because I, I feel like they, they follow these things to like, such a letter where they don't speak. They all wear white jumpsuits. They all smoke cigarettes for God knows why, what reason. Well, and that's the thing is that if their point is pointlessness, yeah. then y- you reach a certain, uh, I would say limit of diminishing returns to as far as like why you should even continue doing it, so to speak. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the, uh, it kind of reminds me of absurdism and like the, uh, the philosophy it's, the partial philosophy of Albert Camus, the guy who wrote The Stranger. And I think that that book actually like makes an appearance in one of the episodes in the first episode of The Leftovers. I'm not sure. It very I mean there's a lot of uh things like that whether it be the uh, the appearance of a certain yeah. issue of National Geographic or Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I don't I don't those those smaller mysteries about the National Geographic thing, what happened to the fucking like monster deer, the 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 dogs? You gotta shoot the dogs because they're not all dogs anymore. I don't I don't give a shit about that. I I've learned to divorce myself from expectation of that. It's like you know if there's a if there's an answer to that, well that might be interesting. And, but I don't give a fuck now. And I agree with what you're saying, but I also feel like that this it's not a bad thing against the show like that i think the show is deliberately trying to like confront the audience with the unexplainable and things that we're going just like when you like have depression so to speak like you 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 get so fixated on something that you think that there has to be a reason Mm -hmm. and so i love that 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 sense of unease that those kind of smaller mysteries create because we can never truly confront what they actually mean and therefore we're always going to be pissed off by them in a a sense so that's why i personally yeah love the show it's like one one final note I want to want to talk about for the guilty remnant. It's just like for returning to what I was talking about their whole ethos, their their philosophy or absence thereof. It's so bizarre to me to try to understand them just because they're not how I would normally like understand a cult. Because when you think of a cult, you right. think of you think of Heaven's Gate, you think of Jonestown, you think of these guys who are proselytizing on any street corner that they can get. And it's like, hey, man, have you heard my version of the good word? Also, would you See, like to come but, over to my compound here, and have some Kool-Aid? Here's about the guilty remnant that something for me that made it very clear, and, and this was made even more clear, and I believe episode eight or nine of the first season, mm-hmm. where we kind of find out that Patty, who is the leader of the guilty remnant, at least that chapter of the guilty remnant, we don't yeah. know if she was the one who started it all. Right, or, right. We, don't, we don't really... We haven't really gotten that answer, actually. I would just, well, we haven't gotten that answer, but I feel like it's pretty much almost yeah. crystal clear that there are just different chapters. Right, but she's but obviously yeah. the leader of, of this one. Right. And we get kind of the answer that she had sort of these visions and these things. And I, I think that's the important thing is that I, – and I remember me and you had this discussion last year, Nick, is that – People probably go into psychiatrists, at least in in this world, or, or they did, where 
they go in with these visions that they're having or these ideas or you hear see people in the street corner saying this stuff right. that oh, oh the the world's going to end and this is going to happen right. and if it did actually happen someone's going to be right if they had well, thought that's, that that's what time. i mean like i mean we have to think that uh, september 10th of 2001 that mm. somebody probably made some stupid claim to somebody whether it be their therapist that something bad is going to happen tomorrow but but, but now but it also has nothing to do with what actually happened but i think yeah. that's the problem is that people didn't latch on to them thinking that they're almost like a like a figure for jesus then like oh well this person obviously has this this thought process that they can see into the future and they know what we should be following obviously We're, they have healing hugs but that's the thing obviously. the, 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 the second season even takes that my least favorite storyline of season one and probably makes it my favorite so oh, wow. yeah, yeah. Okay. and i i uh i, I don't want to get too get too off the off it but um and i don't want to spoil anything necessarily but um, Holy Wayne makes an appearance in season two, and it is delightful. Mm. So yeah. I am I am very much looking forward to watching the second season and yeah. discussing it with you guys. I, it was because yeah. he was my least favorite character from the first season, yeah. and when he showed up, I almost like had to do like a double take that it was him because I was like, wait a minute, is that Holy Wayne? Well, yeah. it's also without spoiling the context of yeah. how he shows up uh, before he did this show um, one of the things he was notable for was he was uh, a reoccurring character on the show peep show which is one of the funniest shows i've ever seen it's hmm. a british uh comedy yeah uh and that's like him on that show is hilarious so it's almost like i'm so glad that so to speak without saying what he does whatever that they brought him back for more com- comedic purposes than for yeah. his uh stick because he's very good at being funny and i think just in his little and he <laughs> was absolutely terrific in <laughs> the was. episode he appeared in uh, I, in season two <laughs> there's something that he reacts to in the episode that he shows up that when I rewatch the episode uh, with my mother, I like burst out laughing because I just don't think I notice his facial expression during. Wait, you watch the leftovers with your mom? Yeah, she 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 likes it all. Holy shit! We, yeah, she's a fan. I watch a lot of things with my parents. Okay, I watch like it. It all goes down the middle. Like I pretty much watch everything with my parents, but it'll just depend on which one likes which show. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, in previously uh, in, in a few weeks ago, I mean, you discussed season two, at least the beginning of it, Nick, on yeah. here. So I'm glad that we're all kind of fans of the leftovers, and maybe maybe after we see all the. <laughs> The, of season two in, in Tucson, if you get to catch up, maybe we can do a uh, an episode like we did with Bloodline, where we talk about say, the we first can do two seasons, something like that. And we I can also um, it, it just depending on how long it's on, considering I can't imagine it's going to be on the air for a lot longer, yeah. maybe mm-hmm. one or two seasons more. We should also just do like a rest- retrospective. Yeah. I feel like it's maybe the only show that all three of us <laughs> currently watch, so to speak. So, yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah, cool. Well, that was a fun week in review, and uh, definitely maybe some things to look forward to, whether it be yeah. a, a full review on Spotlight or Brooklyn or... A full uh, review on all 25 Zedoichi films. Yeah, you betcha. <laughs> all right, so on uh, this episode, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about the Shane Black 2005 film Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which uh, stars Robert Downey Jr., Val Kilmer, and Michelle Monaghan. Let's go. Hurry up. It's not my fault. Just shut up and run. Hold it right there. Harry was a small-time crook. Oh, boy. Till he opened the door. Oh, no, no. We're not ready for your audition. Just take him. He's ready. You ready, right? To a really big break. Quit acting like the good guy. You got your partner killed. You killed him. 
See, this is what I'm talking about. Old school method. Get me Gabe Perry on the phone. But he'll need a real cop. Detective lessons tomorrow for your acting. Oh, you're the uh, consultant. If he wants to act the part. You must be Gabe Perry. Still gay? Me? No. I just like the name so much. I can't get rid of it. So what do you do? I'm a private detective. She thinks I'm a detective. Of all the idiot things to do. My sister. Honey, Are you gonna help me? I gotta check my schedule. Can you help me, Harry? Because you're not gonna help me okay, find somebody okay. else. So sometimes I have other. Oh, uh, my caseload oh, is, sure. is pretty. Thank you. From Shane Black, the creator of Lethal Weapon. Do not play detective. Moron. Go home before the bad guys do something bad right. to you. Two corpses in three hours. I mean, that's unusual, right? Yes. Comes a mystery. It's a frame up. First things first. Do you have the corpse? I, I got rid of it. You threw it away. Yeah. Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No. The definition of the word idiot. Ow. That starts with a kiss. Why'd you lie to me? It was an excuse to stay around you, so I mean, I think... Ow! Did I just cut off your finger? Yeah. It's on the floor. Pick it up. Pick it up. And ends with a bang. Where is the girl? <laughs> you put a live round in that gun. Oh, yeah. There was like an 8% chance. Eight. Who taught it? you math? <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. What do you think, I'm stupid? Val Kilmer. Yes, I think you're stupid. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Oh, hell. Kiss me. What? Kiss me. No, no, no. No, no, no. <laughs> These lessons suck. film uh, is about a murder mystery bringing together a private eye, a struggling actress, and a thief who is masquerading as an actor. That was pretty good for IMDb. Yeah, Usually they're, they're awful, quite but that, straightforward. That, was, that was totally fine. Yeah. <laughs> so this film is a, a, a comedic film noir, and uh, it's, it's definitely... Um, I remember the first time seeing it, definitely different than I expected. And uh, I feel like pretty much everybody would probably have that thought process the first time going in and actually seeing what the final product is. And uh, Toussaint, I know you are, are the one who wanted to talk about this film the most, so mm -hmm. why don't you start us off? Okay. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is one of my absolute favorite movies of all time. It is one of the funniest films I have ever seen. Even returning to it after having seen it multiple times, like I think I've seen it... Before watching it for this podcast, I've watched it five times, and now the number is at seven because I watched it not only today, but I also watched it a second time for the first time with a director's commentary. So I have a lot to talk about with this film. First of all, I just want to know, uh, is this a good time to bring up what your secret was? That Or are you saving that for later? Because you teased that to me, yeah, and right. I really want to know. All right. You want to know? The Let's do it. You want to know the secret? I, I think we want to know, and I don't think our audience can wait any longer. Okay. So. The secret line between Shane Black and and Film Tank. Okay. Okay. Shane Black, uh, when he was starting out as a uh, as, as a, a production assistant, he also worked as a an on screen like film right. He uh, as an on screen actor right. Mm -hmm. He had written for a film called Lethal Weapon. And Joel Silver, Joel Silver, okay, as a favor to Shane Black, had him cast 
in a certain little movie. I know what you're going with. Called that. Predator. Yep. Ah. I, as ah. Predator, in order to like learn from the from the director of that film, so we could actually see him like like directing stuff. So as soon as I learned about that, I was like, I have to jump on this before you guys get on it. Nice. So I, I, actually, I did read that, and that's that's why the minute you started, to, it jostled my memory. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Well, that was certainly worth the wait. Yeah. I was going to say we've we've talked about Predator at least once or twice on this uh, podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry, design. later I'm going to bring up Inherent Vice. Of course you are. <laughs> of course, it's I'm only a, half it's joking. A noir film, I was so therefore, say, you must mention. I'm it. only half joking. Anyway. Yeah. Um, where to even start with this film? The uh, beginning. The the. Okay, even with the beginning. Okay, let's start at the beginning. Okay. This film is the root of my love affair with title sequences because the one for this one is so beautiful. It's great. Like it, it's it's so well animated. It's by the same people who actually uh, worked on the uh, American Horror Story uh, title sequences, which I I'm not even a fan of that show anymore. But I love the title sequences for yeah. every single season. Um, it just feels like it's pulled back from the the cover and and the back end of a of a dirty like. Like Raymond Chandler paperback, yeah. And another, it also uh, kind of reminds me of like the, like the old Pink Panther movie, you know, yeah. like with that like kind of like goofy anime. Not, not that the movie itself or not that the titles are like overtly comic, but mm-hmm. that just kind of like dainty style of animation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And another interesting like thing, just to jump forward a little bit. Now that I mentioned Raymond Chandler, like I didn't realize this until I went back um, to the film just. Like for the seventh time, and I was like reading through some of the credits and actually got towards the bottom. And I realized the names that every single one of the chapters, like day one, day two, the, the epilogue, they are all names of a Raymond Chandler novel. And they were used with permission from his estate. Really? And that's so cool. Okay, wait. You're talking about the chapter titles. The because cha- there are other inner titles that are not the lady, chapter the lady, in the, the lady in the Lake. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. That's Farewell, right, yeah. my lovely. Because at first I was picturing things like how Harry got to the party. I'm like, wait, no. what? But no, those aren't the chapter titles. Those are specifically. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's what, that's that's what I'm cool. talking about. And yeah. I think that's that's really cool because the whole um, the, the, the whole uh, fake author of, of what, what's his name? Johnny Gossamer. Johnny Gossamer and yeah. stuff. It's like it's totally like pulled from the cliches of, of hard-boiled detective stories. Yep. And Raymond Chandler, who is the author of The Big Sleep, which is pretty much the prototypical <laughs> hard-boiled detective novel. I thought yeah. that was so cool. That's yeah. such an awesome little detail. Um, just back to the actual like, con- like content of the film. Uh, another piece of trivia is that the little kid at the beginning who plays Harry – um, as as the the magician, mm-hmm. that is actually uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s son, Indio. Oh, yeah, I thought that was really cool. He's got a son named Indio. Yeah, Indio. Okay, guess he didn't want to go with Robert again. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. You know, celebrities they have they have their eccentric. Does he call, call himself Harold the uh, the and they think he even like circles it on the side. Harold, Harold the Great. The, yeah, Harold yeah. the Great. No, yeah, now I'm amazing. Yeah, yeah he gets because at first the extras were standing in front yeah. of it. Get out of the way. Get off a mammoth fucking lens. <laughs> um, the let, let, let's just zoom in right to like the crux of it. Let's do it. Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer are awesome in this film. Their repartee between one another, the writing 
where itself is just really good, but just their delivery is exquisite. I, I would watch it. like that's definitely my favorite aspect of yeah. the entire film is just those two talking to each other, uh, yeah. going back and forth. I would watch like five more films, like a, a Lethal Weapon series mm-hmm. of of just these two guys. Yeah, around. fortunately at this at this point you'd have Robert Downey Jr. playing his character from Iron Man, and you'd have Fat Val Kilmer. So eh, fortunate. Hey, fat, he was great in McGruber. Was that he was great in McGruber? Yeah. Oh God! I, th- I, was... I, th- I think McGruber, even though it was a terrible film, benefited. No, it was a great film. Benefited from Fat Val Kilmer. It did. I mean, he's got like the best line in the movie when he's like, "I wasn't talking to you, I was talking to the missile." Yeah. Oh God. God. I, I love Robert Downey Jr. as this hapless robber smartass who just happens to just like by some serendipitous like events ends up going to to Las Vegas. Well, I mean, it's, Los it's serendipitous, but it's also a complete staple of noir, which is a case of mistaken identity mm-hmm. and, you know, switch profession. Yeah, and, and Val Kilmer plays this this awesome, sarcastic straight man who always has some of the best... Or is he a straight man? <laughs> oh, that's what's funny about it. Oh, my God, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Gay Perry, the comedic straight man. He's the sarcastic gay straight man. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> I just that just clicked in my head now. He's like, yeah. Um I love what he asked him. He's like, Do you still go by that? He's like, No, like, I'm I'm knee deep in pussy. I, I, I just I forget what it's oh, like. Oh no, was. I'm just knee deep in pussy. I was like, I just like the way it sounds. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I just like the way it sounds. Yeah. It's like I got a what was it? Is like I got a dollar that says pass the pepper. I've got another <laughs> one. It's like, what are, what are you what talking are you? about? I'm talking money talking monkeys like yeah just ugly son of a bitch came from the future all he does is say ficus like yeah. who comes up with a line his like ability that? to always go with somebody's like misunderstanding yeah. instead of like it's just it's, it's a comedic uh gift that keeps on giving yeah and the, and the whole like badly joke at the beginning where you're just like i feel badly no bad because you're saying that your ability to feel like the mechanism that allows you to feel is is broken it's like sleep bad and i was like what what fuckhead? <laughs> Badly is an <laughs> adverb. Get out of my car. <laughs> I just love that. Um, uh, and, 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 and another thing was like, what's the name of Harmony Lane Corinne's character? I mean, her her actress Michelle Monaghan. Michelle Monaghan. She was great in this. She's uh, great. She's also the uh, the wife from the first season True of Detective. True Detective, which yeah. I didn't recognize until just now. And yeah. she's just superb in this. She's awesome. She's she's not a. She's not a femme fatale. There are no, no that's there, what's actually there are kind no of great. Like in she, this. like you think that that's what it's going to be because you know they already start announcing the tropes that they're going to play with. Yeah. And then she, what I love is that she's not a femme fatale, but she almost accidentally becomes one. Like at certain points, because she kind of keeps getting them like more and more, like yeah. like pile or I would say like knee deep in shit because mm-hmm. of like the mistakes she makes. But it's not the femme fatale reveal of like she was double crossing them all along. She yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah, there's um, she's also like part of like one of my favorite lines in the film when she like falls asleep and a spider like crawls into her bra and then he just does that flick thing, which is great because that also harkens back to the first scene uh, with them together, which is the creepy guy at the party going to like hit on mm-hmm. her, essentially take advantage of her in her yeah. unconscious state. So I love that we we're introduced to their dynamic in that scene, and so that kind of directly plays into like. Like he, tr- like he saves her from it, and then he becomes a victim of it accidentally. Yeah, I, I just like that kind of correlation. Yeah, and she's like, Harry, it's like it's not that big of a deal. It's like, and then he gets all offended. It's yeah. like, not that big a deal. <laughs> not that big a deal. I grabbed your tit. It's a fucking biggie. <laughs> it's just like, oh, uh, that that was that was amazing. It's like, oh my god. There's okay. So another one of my favorite lines. Let me just let Let's me just, do it. Let me just gush about this film. Keep gushing. Is when they. 
he he goes to the party after like getting his finger reattached. And like it's all this weird like like S and M like Christmas themed shit, and eventually he's just like so corked out of his mind. This girl comes up, is like, yeah, I don't know if this guy's your boyfriend, but he was totally like hitting on me. And I'm just like, what a bitch. And I was just like, all these girls are, and it's terribly misogynistic. It really is. But he's like corked out of his mind, and he's just like, all these girls are just damaged goods. Like, take a guy who like sleeps with like a hundred girls. Look at his background. Rel- relatively unspectacular. Take a girl who slept with like a like a hundred guys and and just like and I'll bet you something's rotten in Denmark. It's like somebody took America by the <laughs> East Coast and shook it, and all the normal girls held on for dear life. I'm like, damn, <laughs> fuck, that is so raw. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. You can tell how many times I've seen that film I just because so. I'm able to quote that. Yes. But it's just so it's it's so good. And also, just a little cherry on the top is that it also features like in a smaller role. Like not not so much of a speaking role, but she's got like a couple of lines. Is uh, Shannon Sosaman, who um, was one of my like teenage celebrity crushes for a while, so that was pretty awesome. Wait, but f- from what then? She was huh? Like what was she in then? What was she in? She was in uh, Forty Days, Forty Nights. Oh, okay. Yeah, gotcha. yeah. So she was like the pink-haired. Like... Yeah, I remember that now. Yeah, oh. and the music uh, by I think. John Ottman, like the actual score, is just so great. It's this mixture of jazz and big band, and it's just it it, it perfectly emulates the mood of like a hard-boiled detective film. For sure, yeah. This this film twists everything, all the tropes of a a of a hard-boiled detective f- film on its head. It lampshades a lot of its plot holes, would not not successfully, but sometimes you yeah. know just very cheekily. And so that's not so much a perfect film, but it is a film that is perfect for me. Yeah, yeah so, sure. Yeah, I love it. Sure. Um, this film I've only seen twice, so obviously mm. not quite as many as you two saw. Yeah. Um, I feel like even though I do really enjoy a lot of the dialogue in this film, um, it's not my favorite part of the movie, which I would probably be in the very slim minority with that, is that most people enjoy the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, I gravitate more towards the action that happens in this film, as I think a lot of... Um, what's happening on the screen is that not necessarily even like physical comedy, but a lot of um, things that are going along with the dialogue, I think, work great in this film. And a lot of it isn't even meant to be funny. Like the scene um, with uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, Harry, when he is he, the girl with the pink hair gets murdered and he's below the bed. And it, like it gets real for a moment when he gets up and shoots shoots the guy in there and he just kind of the guy's kind of like laughing at him like oh, you a got thousand a gun. yard stare yeah he's like hey you got a gun what are you gonna do with that and he just fucking just kills him yeah just, like and it like has to shoot him like six times to kill him and it's like gets a reel there and he yeah. just he just leaves then and i feel like that's something with this film that i really enjoy because even though the dialogue is really good and it's not my favorite part of the film um i really like so many different of the gags that are happening and so many of the uh other things that happen throughout the film that you actually see on the screen, and I, I feel like it's great. I don't know why, but um, the hardest I've left both times uh, throughout the film is when they're trying to get the body uh, down, and they decide to throw it off the roof into the dumpster. <laughs> it's the side of the dumpster. What a bunch of dumbasses. Yes. But I feel like that's great because that's totally something that doesn't really fit in this film. But then it shows up there, and it's just so ridiculous and amazing. At the Speaking same time. of the body, I, I for me, the first time I watched that, I cracked up just because I thought the physicality of 
of Robert Downey Jr. doing it, which is great, but him pissing on the corpse. It's just <laughs> one of the greatest things ever because it just, he genuinely has this like bewildered expression when he first sees it. And I just love how it just naturally just starts pissing on it. And, and it's just, yeah. <laughs> but, but that's the, <laughs> yeah. That's the thing where I feel like the, the, the almost the, the physical aspects of this film and, and the actual, um, you know, the, the shots and the, the different parts of the, of the, what you see in this film is really what makes it great for me because I, I really just enjoy that. I, I enjoy the running gag of people getting shot in the head by mistake of, uh, the, the lady in the lake when they find her like, well, she broke her neck and that's how she died. He's like, well, I don't know if the cops are going to think that cause she's got that bullet hole right there in the head where you shot. He's like, Oh fuck. God damn it. Gotta and go, <laughs> gotta go, gotta yeah. go. Other, other... Monday to Russian roulette. Yeah, well, that's where I was going to go yeah. is that my – that's my, like, second favorite part of the film because it's – if you haven't seen it before, it's almost like the scene in Pulp Fiction where the guy gets shot in the head. Like, if you hadn't seen it before, there's no way you're going to see that coming of him shooting him on, like, the first try. It's one of those things where it's like, oh, we're going to play Russian roulette and then eventually it suits him. No, first, like, first shout out, just <laughs> – and, that's and I love how great. he has to explain to him how like that mathematics works. Yeah. yeah, it's like there was like an eight percent chance. Eight. <laughs> stop doing math. <laughs> Fucking stop it. Stop multiplying. Yes. Stop it. <laughs> and I, yeah, I, I think that's just something for me that I gravitate towards with this film. And really, I, I, I um, this is really high up on your list, Dusan. And although I do enjoy this, this is not a five star film for me. Yeah. Um, and it's not that I even necessarily have things I really don't like about it. Just um, the whole package isn't really my tempo i guess to put it that way this isn't really the kind of film that i usually love to watch over and over again yeah but still i really enjoy it this is a, a really fun film and it, it's good and it's yeah. um uh, there's really not too much more for me to say about it, at least just my like opening thoughts because there are certain things that i like about it and i definitely uh lean more towards the action that happens in the film uh, of, of things that i enjoy in it but it's a overall really good film yeah I uh, I saw this movie for the first time when I was like a freshman in high school, huh. and I just checked it out from the library because somebody recommended it, forget who at this point, and it was one of those things where I thought I would just watch the first 10 minutes, because mm-hmm. it was like 1 a.m., so I genuinely, and this was before I was like staying up till 4 a.m., you know, or whatever, on a regular basis, so it was one of those things where I put on the first 10 minutes to fall asleep to, because I just did that all the time, uh, and uh, I stayed up the entire night watching the whole movie, because it's just one of those where like once it gets you, you whether it's like perfect or not, like it's just enthralling from start to finish. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a I'm a pretty big fan of this movie. I I do think the more I watch it, the more I start to have certain criticisms that become I would say uh, more crystal clear in the sense that. What I respond to this movie personally is like the comedy itself, whether it's the physical comedy that Alex you're talking about or just mm-hmm. what we were talking about, Tucson, about mm-hmm. the, the the back and forth between Val Kilmer and Robert Downey Jr. And I feel like that is so engaging that if the film doesn't need its meta gimmick mm-hmm. um, because there are certain times when I feel like that gets in the way of just like – letting these characters even do even more bickering or even more because uh there are just certain moments where now that i know how the story plays out i feel like the film almost stops dead in its tracks to explain things that we don't need to be explained because we've already seen the movie so it just feels even more like an exposition dump like when i'm talking about like how like the very first scene like there's no real reason for them to like jumble up the the chronology of like oh that was me in the flashback and that was her in the flashback and i didn't tell you that before like 
that's a cool narrative trick when you first when you haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. When you have, it's it's not really it's not really that funny, um, and it also doesn't really serve a purpose uh, narrative wise. Doesn't really fit into the theme of anything that this movie's going for. It's not like Memento, where like obviously that structure is imperative to that the theme of that movie and whatnot. Can you imagine a comedy? In the same like structure of memento, that would be well. Uh, it's called uh, Seinfeld, <laughs> the the betrayal, <laughs> the season nine episode. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it doesn't do the uh, A to Z to B to Y, but it goes backwards. Okay, I'll yeah. have to check that out. Like the, uh, it's actually it's more akin. What you're actually describing is something that you should know. It's the the Venture Brothers episode. Oh my God! You're yeah. right. Where yes. they do the same, and you can only tell what. Seen it is chronologically but, by the value but, of the comic book that's in every. Yeah, yeah I was going to say there's there are a lot of things that kind of are used, especially in that Seinfeld episode. I know the uh, the popsicle that Kramer has that yeah, it's keeps, like a lollipop. I think lollipop yeah, that keeps getting bigger as the bigger uh, yeah. episode goes on. Yeah. yeah, that's an awful episode of TV, <laughs> in my opinion. And I love Seinfeld anyway. Um, so yeah, there is just certain moments where I feel like that does the movie a disservice. And, um, my only other complaint before I really just start praising the rest right. of it is that because this is so good at being a uh, film noir without simply just, uh, employing the affectations of film noir, that also means that, uh, by the end of the film, I start to lose interest because, uh, like I've, uh, the big sleep, you brought up Raymond Chandler's novel, you know, uh, Anybody, best the film starring Bogart and McCall, anybody who's seen The Big Sleep, if you could honestly tell me how we got from point A to point Z in that movie, I'd love to hear it. Because <laughs> one of the staples of film noir is just the most convoluted storyline yeah. uh, that you can imagine. Because here we have, like, okay, so the, the sister committed suicide because she saw the imposter having sex with someone she thought was her real father. Yeah. So therefore, that brings up the incest between her and her real father. You know, like, it's just a very big stretch as to like the mystery we thought we were investigating mm-hmm. at the beginning of the movie and so because it has to like go through all those motions I, I somewhat get a little uh, detached by the end of it but the thing that continually I would say brings me back every moment is whatever uh, Val Kilmer and uh, and, and Robert Downey Jr. just start going at it. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's the kind of thing, and that's the only reason why I have those criticisms is because I think that's so good that it doesn't even need this kind of overarching meta gimmick, and it could just let these characters breathe a little bit. Like, they're so good at those parts that, like, you don't need to be a pastiche at some point because, yeah. like, a lot of times that's used as a crutch. And I don't think it's used as a crutch here. I think it was a genuinely clever idea at certain points, but um, it distracts from what I think is the real gem of like this movie's strengths and whatnot. It could do without. I I, I agree. As, as much as I enjoy fourth wall breaking when it's done well, and I think in this film it is done well. Yeah, it's but... definitely. It's not like some of the worst like offenders of it where you're like, okay, so why did we do this? And it's not so yeah. much that I don't understand what they're doing, especially because hard-boiled detective novels, some of the, the, the one of the biggest staples is the protagonist who narrates his inner monologue. So it's kind of ironic that here we don't get the inner monologue of somebody who's like overly emotional, but somebody who's like overly neurotic. And, and in that way, it feels like it's indebted to like Woody Allen or something. For so many moving parts, there are usually in a hard-boiled detective like film. Like it, It's really all about that, that whole framing device of having like the 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 detective like 
narrate the entire thing is supposed to be a commentary on the malleability and ultimately the unreliability of perspective. Right. And what's great about this film and what it definitely, I see, I think, succeed at doing, which is ultimately why I, I don't mind it in its form, uh, even if I get distracted by it sometimes, is that what's great is that, like, yeah, it's like about the, un- the trope itself is about the unreliability of these kind of characters. And yet here it's, we have a character who's almost like, like forced to do it. And that's, what's kind of funny about it. It's like, it's like, he's the last person that should be telling the story um, simply because of how bad he is at telling the story and just like living in the moment uh, or just like his own like recall of memories. But it like, never comprom- You're right. It never compromises the actual integrity of like the events as they happen. Right. And so that's why I'm able to separate the two as far as like what I don't like about the movie per se and what I love about the movie. Yeah. Uh, but, but no, but overall it, it really is a, a fun ride. And I just, I, there, there are so many little details that I always forget, like, so to speak, like I, uh, I'm trying to think, like I love it is in his monologue, actually, uh, in the opening of the party, uh, when he's talking about how he got there and he's like, yeah, I bet you're wondering how I got here. And like, or maybe you're not, maybe you're wondering how silly buddy picks shit off comics. I don't know. But, and like, that seems like a random joke, but later on we see the flashback of, uh, Harmony's character using Silly Putty to, to um, so it's like he he's someone who's like seen the script before, which I I just love the idea of that kind of fourth wall breaking, but also not completely I would say out in the open as to uh, all the narrative and inner monologue tricks that it has up its sleeve. Yeah, another thing I like, and this is definitely referenced in, in one specific scene uh, for sure. But uh, I do like that this film is so self-aware that it it goes out of its way to poke fun at itself at multiple uh, stops, especially at the end in the hospital scene when like the, the whole legion of people who are killed off or in the film come back. And it, for some reason, includes Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, why don't you bring everybody back? Yeah, <laughs> fuck it. <laughs> but that's what's so great about that is it's yep. it's just getting so ridiculous that it's like, well, if if they can all live, then anybody can because we can do anything in a story apparently. <laughs> Um, and I, I just like that. It, it seemed like it almost brought back um, kind of what uh, I, I always remember from the first Wayne's World, where they decided to do a different ending than the actual ending that the film has. Because <laughs> they Scooby Doo ending, yeah, because they didn't like the ending as much. Yeah. It's like, well, let's do the happy ending; that'll be good. But I think that's really good for this film is that it's kind of showing that this is just a story and that they can do anything they want. So even though they're following what the trope is, they're still kind of poking fun at it at the same time, which I I really liked. And again, that's part of the physical aspect of this film, although it does involve the script as well, which is really nice. Hmm. But yeah, but even like the callbacks, which aren't even explicitly callbacks, but it just shows how like every little moment matters, like the, uh, the, is it called proto cop? Proto cop. You know, like in, in the beginning of the movie, he's stealing a proto or he's trying to steal a proto cop doll, and then later on, that's also proto cop is essentially proto cop is the reason why they both get to the party yeah. because he's trying to steal a proto cop doll, and also the the guy who plays proto cop is drunk off his ass eating yeah. Christmas cookies and drinking dosakis, right? Which is another bit of physical comedy that's great because I love when she like says freeze and just that great just stumble two steps backwards of an over the rail and then you hear a cat meow i mean it's like it's very broad comedy but it's staged so well that it's just it really well, works and another another comedy thing is as showing the commercial that michelle monahan is in too which is great i've sucked the heads off fish <laughs> oh here's another here's another fact about that do you want to know who voices that fucking bear in that commercial i feel like i know but i can't lawrence fishburne really yes i yes i've heard that before yes yeah. like like shane black was just like i can't fucking believe we actually got him to do it like i could have gotten my dad to do that <laughs> yeah, well he probably got paid like twenty thousand dollars to come into studio for 
four minutes and record that dialogue. So. Also, going back to to Protocop, they actually like harken back to that one more, one last time when he's like on the phone with his uh, with his nephew, yep. and it's just like it's like yeah, it's like oh you're getting that, it's like oh yeah, you're gonna get a Protocop call, Protocop doll too. It's like yeah, it'd probably be worth more because he's uh, paraplegic now, and and you can only, you can hear on the other side, really? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Speaking of, really quick, going back to the commercial of uh, of Michelle Monaghan's character, I also love the cutaway of the uh, when he meets uh, the person at the party who says she does acting, and it's it cuts to what she does, which is basically just those slasher porno, porno flicks. Where mm-hmm. I just love the completely cartoonish like beheading that happens because she's just topless in front of the camera screaming, yeah. and then you just see like a like almost like a slap, and then just a head just fucking flies out the window. Like there is no correlation between how that. How she was being uh, hit and why a head should have popped off, and I just I, I love that because it's just a three second scene, and yet it it completely nails its mark. Yeah. <laughs> it's just great. Yeah, we also have the uh, very interesting sort of role reversal of um, Robert Downey Jr. having sex with her best friend and him not understanding why she, why she can't like deal with it because he did, couldn't understand it and he was he was you know didn't really happen because he was you know he was drunk and he doesn't yeah. really remember it or whatever and then pretty much the exact same thing same thing happens but it's the stories progress now where they're in a relationship almost or where they're not even relationship necessarily but they're more involved and she finds out about a past thing that happens like <laughs> or he finds out a past thing that happened with her years ago with yeah. one of their friends you fucked you chutney <laughs> yeah and it like it was like over the top like no get the fuck out of my sight get the fuck out of here oh my god yeah which yeah. is uh yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's there it yeah. is um, and and the little gun too, the little gun shooting out of Val Kilmer's uh, <laughs> pants. Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah. Oh man. Homophobes never check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's that's actually I. It's on paper Val Kilmer's character shouldn't work because it sounds like it would come across offensive, but that's mm-hmm. actually one of the strengths of the scripts is that it completely embraces those gay stereotypes just so that it can completely shatter them as well and not be beholden to any of them. So I just love how it both like, like, yeah, like when you just said that line, homophobes never check there. Like yeah. it's completely aware of like how you would perceive a character like that mm-hmm. uh, in a movie and like the kind of the carefulness that one should probably, you know, cause you don't want it to be too broad. Whereas to like, you think that the jokes on him, but like it's moments like that where the script shows that it's, it's, it's so, self-aware about everything whether it just be like character details or like you know uh, those kind of messages that it might be sending. well and the, another uh, talk about it being self-aware of that and it just being absolutely hilarious and i every like the both times i've seen the film i've just cracked up at this scene as well is when Val Kilmer is getting the pat down and he goes like ooh yeah, <laughs> yeah he was already planning this out yeah. like well before like he knew how to think on his feet Val Kilmer t- t- honestly is my favorite part of this movie acting wise like I just oh man I, I wish he was in more roles like this he, he's a very very funny person uh between this and I know Alex didn't love it, but uh, McGruber, he's fantastic in there. Mm. He is. Uh, and so I genuinely think he should, uh, but I feel like his career uh, is uh, taking a bit of a turn. It's gone a different trajectory. He's, he's ate himself into uh, different kind of roles. Oh. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, he's he's definitely the most assertive and in control character of this entire thing. Even if he doesn't know everything, just like I, I I'm thinking back to the the scene when they're on the balcony and he basically like tells Harry that he's the ringer for Colin Farrell for the film. It was like, yes, which of course pays off too. Yeah, and then he gets he gets punched in the face and it's like he just puts him in an arm lock and he's <laughs> like, pick those up, pick up my glasses. Pick him up. I was like, "Damn, okay." His line uh, to Harry about the uh, <laughs> when you what do you look up the word uh, "idiot" in the dictionary? What do you see? A picture, picture of me? No, you see the definition of the word "idiot," which you fucking you are. are. Yeah, like that's just great. Yeah. Um, speaking of physical comedy, once again, now yeah. that you just brought up the, uh, the the fight or the arm lock, whatever. One one uh, joke I love uh, in this movie is at the party when he. When Harry goes into the room where M- Michelle Monaghan's yes. character is being like uh, taken advantage of, and he puts on this completely tough guy front, which I love, is kind of like a reaction to his newfound status. Like he thinks things have changed, even though it's not. He's really just a fraud. Mm-hmm. So he puts on this like Clint Eastwood, like walk away, don't even think about it. You know, like tough guy <laughs> attitude. And then he like says like, oh, the, we won't even have a discussion. I'll just knock you out or whatever. And it just cuts to this fight, which isn't even like exactly what we would expect because it's not like we get uh, we cut to a fight where like he's just getting the shit kick out of him like even the other guy is not that good of a fighter like yeah. he's just like grabbing his head and like somewhat shoving it against the ground and then just like punching him like you would see like a video game go like I just love that like he's getting the shit kicked out of him by a person that's not even that good of a fighter like just the physical comedy that comes along with that kind of plays with your expectations just some Hollywood yuppie yeah which I also love then we in the background we hear when uh, she leaves the party with him he says something like there's a lot of creeps here that would have took advantage of it. like he he plays into what you know he was actually doing as if like he wasn't that person I, yeah so yeah. that was a great payoff yeah yeah a lot of good stuff in this film and uh do we want to go to final ratings or or is there more that we would want to talk about oh I could talk about this film all day, but yeah. you know what? I'm I'm gonna just go into my to my final rating. Okay. I, I love this film. For me, this film, at least for me, on my speed of, of uh, as a film goer, is as compulsively watchable as The Big Lebowski. Yeah. For me, it's like it's 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 up there. Um, I mean, this is really very similar in yeah, terms both of the Raymond Chandler esque. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're so. both. M- Sort of modern contemporary noir. This movie kind of reminds me of Inherent Vice in a way. How so? <laughs> How so? We need to do an episode on that movie. We will. We? Yeah. yeah. We will. And what I'll, are you going to reference instead of Inherent just, Vice in I'll that? Chinatown. <laughs> That'd be awesome. I'll say, just like Chinatown, this movie. <laughs> It'll just be the flip inverse of what I was talking about on the Chinatown episode. <laughs> yeah. But what were you talking about for Inherent Vice? What? <laughs> What were you like? I think he just went out of his way to bring up. Oh no, no, I was making a oh, joke. You, oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, obviously, they're both noirs. So yeah, that was the joke itself. Yeah. yeah, but for my final score for this film, I'm gonna have to give it a four out of five. Really? Four, yeah. Four out of really? five. Yeah. I thought it was that one of your favorite all-time it is, favorite it is, films. It is one of my my all-time favorite that's films a, of that, all time. It's got to be a five out of five then. Right? All right. Five or out four out and a half. I mean, at least. Yeah. I mean, I, I give it a okay. I I'll mean, give, we don't want to. No, yeah. First off, no, 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 we don't no. want to say anything that you, you know you shouldn't. But don't feel like you have to give it a four. No, 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 no. I I have a reluctance of giving things fives just okay. because I know that like on repeat viewings, like I've also Has, alluded to before that there's not. Everything about this isn't pitch perfect, especially with the lampshading of like the the plot holes and everything like that. But I think that you know what, 
in in retrospect, I would give this a four and a half out okay. of five. Okay. Well, yeah. that's, uh, on my uh, you know all time favorite list that I have on Letterboxd, it's like over a hundred films. I would say like maybe twenty five out of those hundred actually have five star ratings. The yeah. rest are four and a half for me personally. Yeah. It wasn't it was it wasn't that he didn't give it a five. <laughs> it's that he didn't give it a four. I was going to say like that's what threw me by surprise. Like, <laughs> yeah. I was I was just yeah so yeah. yeah. You're always full of surprises, too. Son. I am. Yeah. yeah. Well, as I, I mentioned earlier, this film is not uh, quite doing things for me that are my favorite in, in terms of films. Uh, noir is not my favorite genre. Uh, I, I do really like the films, but it's not my favorite in terms of uh, a genre that, that I gravitate towards. And although I did like a lot of the, the physical comedy and I did like a lot of the actual dialogue in this film uh, very much, just overall is my favorite, really. And uh, I can enjoy it and not think it's the best ever. So I'm going to give it a, a good score of three out of five as I would uh, uh, watch this um, you know, again. I'd really watch it any time, but it's uh, not my favorite. And that's really all I have to say about it because uh, it's just a, just a good movie for me. Yeah. All right. That it is. Yes, sir. Well, I am going to give it a three and a half out of five star. Okay. Um, I'm definitely a big fan of it. I uh, I don't get... I feel like every time I watch it, I, I want to say I lose a little bit of what it... Because I certainly will hit a you know a level where it's like, no, I'm always going to like the film or so to speak. But I will admit, like, there was nothing like watching it for the first time. And um, yeah. a lot of my favorite movies are movies that I feel like I love more every time I watch it rather than the, the opposite. So that's probably why I'm giving it what I would consider a low rating for how much I truly enjoy this movie. Right. But what it does, it does so well. Um, you know, the comedy – that's the thing is, like, it, it, it's – it makes noir compulsively watchable by inserting fantastic comedy because sometimes when you you know for me personally when i when i watch noir which i really do like as a genre but i also get really picky about which noir films i like uh like sometimes it can just get a little too stuffy uh as far as like it just seems like it's so reliant on plot and yet the plot itself is so convoluted that it's kind of like you don't have anything to really latch on to as a viewer whereas this like gives you that both in the meta gimmick but also in the um and just the verbal foreplay between uh, Kilmer and uh, Robert Downey Jr. So it's, it's it's compulsively watchable and for such good reason. And uh, it's just a really, really good film. And I'm going to do something uh, that I don't really ever do particularly. This is really not that weird, but <laughs> just saying that makes it sound weird. But Toussaint, if you really like this film, I recommend mm-hmm. that you watch the movie Seven Psychopaths. Have you ever watched that? No, I haven't. I'm not saying because it's like the same movie but there are a lot of similarities between it and that's a movie that I'm not saying you'll like more but I prefer that movie's take on the meta aspect of telling the crime story Right. Uh, so I feel like if you like that I feel like you'll like that aspect of that movie even more uh, so to speak. So, I'll definitely put that on my list. Uh, yeah, I, I have it if you want to borrow it. Uh, yeah. So I just I just randomly thought about it, and I feel like I just never noticed the connections between these two movies, and I didn't want to only pull an inherent vice and just keep bringing up another movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I give Seven Psychopaths the same rating I give this right. film. So yeah. they're they're pretty much. Not the, the same film, but, but like you but said, I, you're not really speak. like. I'm not really a fan right. of the genre per se, even though yeah. three out of five is. I mean, I didn't like it or anything like that. It just yeah. not my yeah. not my tempo necessarily. But yeah. um, it's for the opposite reasons. Whereas like this movie, this for me, the strength is between the, t- the, c- the two characters. Whereas that movie, I like the dynamic between the two characters. But the strength is in using that meta gimmick to a thematic purpose. Uh, so I just randomly throwing that out there. And, yeah, uh, I think Thanks, we should, man. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So anyway, very good. Or for our listeners, if you like this, you should watch that. Yeah, 
for sure. There's a lot of it. And, and hey, you know what? If anyone out there has a, uh, a noir film that they would like us to cover on a, on a future episode that maybe we haven't brought up. And, Inherent advice. Yeah. Who said that? Do that it. it. That, maybe isn't, that maybe isn't in her advice. <laughs> we, we would accept other films that aren't that. Uh, if you wanted to to put that suggestion in our our, our uh, suggestion box and uh, send it to us, walk it on down, right? Or you our could suggestion send it to box us. is only open two days a week. Yeah. But, uh... Or you could send it to us at filmtankshow at gmail dot com. We always welcome that and other uh, comments on any movies review or, or suggestions for what films you'd like us to review. Yep. On uh, this coming uh, week's episode, we're going to do our first ever documentary. Is we're going to do the uh, the Sundance uh, documentary. At least that's where it premiered. Yeah, 2015. Uh, yeah, uh, just this last year. And that is uh, the documentary The Wolf Pack. Wolf which pack. is available on Netflix if you haven't seen it yet and you want to catch up. It is. And um, for those who maybe don't know that much about it, Nick, uh, you, you, you're the one who suggested that we, we do this uh, film. So why don't you give give the listeners a little... little just, just to give them an it idea of what, a, what it is. a documentary that centers around six children uh, living under somewhat strange circumstances. Uh, by that, I mean uh, their upbringing consists of a father who is somewhat tyrannical in his, uh, I would say, his conditions that he imposes on them as to whether they are even allowed to leave their New York uh, apartment, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It's not so much that they're being like abused, so to speak. Uh, of course, that's debatable, and we'll get into that in the episode or whatever. Yeah. But it's just a, a how he basically, he took the concept of like homeschooling to his extreme. Yeah. Uh, if anybody's ever seen the... Uh, uh, the Greek film, I think, uh, Dogtooth. It's like the real-life version of that, uh, okay. which hmm. is kind of a very celebrated movie from 2009, I think. So anyway, okay. uh, but yeah, so like that's a fictional movie, and here we have the real-life version of like what that looks like. And, uh, and it's also the other aspect of the film is that they were basically also raised on film. Uh, yes. And so that that's also another part. We get to see... Uh, some of the movies that they kind of sweeted like uh, in Be Kind Rewind with, I love that. Yeah, with Jack Black and Moe's Def where like they make their own versions of the film because that's like their outlet for like emotions and whatnot so yeah it's, it's an interesting uh, film in terms of the, the, the story behind it and um, I think we'll have um, views on it in terms of whether we like it or not yep. so that's something to look forward to on episode 43 and you can find that in all of our episodes on filmtankshow.com or you can find them on iTunes as well at Film Tank Show. And also, if you'd like to find us uh, again on Instagram, as we are, I think, going to have now. We put two, a picture. Yeah, we're going to have two posts now. Go, go the, look at that picture. Yeah, when we're going to have two. two oh, posts. do we have two? What was yeah. the second one? Uh, the second one was the Hunger Games uh, post, too, that's, as well. That's right. Because it related to the Hunger Games episode. Um, so we have two posts okay. in, the, in the last. Uh, However many weeks there, or oh, you know, yeah. like three months, four months, whatever. So yeah, the Instagram, also Facebook and Twitter, we are on as well at Film Tank Show. All right, so from Nick Cheney to Son Egan and myself, Alex Diekman, thank you very much as always for listening to Film Tank, and we will catch up with you next time.